Welcome to Andy, James and Andre Talk Money Stuff. Although Andy is the Oracle of Latham, and James is super smart, they are not your gurus. We are not your financial advisors. Please listen to the end of this episode for a full disclaimer. Thank you for listening. We're back after two weeks. Andy, James. Good to be back. How was your fortnight? Yeah, good. Thanks. What happened? Uh, went away for work to Queensland, then went to Sydney You went to Queensland too? Yeah, stayed at some resort that claimed to be five-star, but didn't even have a shaving kit in the room. And it's like- Really? We don't- Oh, we're not doing that at the moment. It's like, yeah, because you want to save money. Don't they have to be work and sustainable, so they're not making plastic single-use stuff? If you, I mean, how much of the um, work sustainable stuff in hotels is just about saving money? Yes. You know, for the, for the sake of an environment, please ask us not to, you know, come and do your bed sheets today. Yeah. Or whatever. Like, yeah, it's a very, very good coincidence that it happens to help their bottom line as yeah. well. Um, yeah. Anyway, it wasn't, wasn't a very good hotel, but I went and stayed at that hotel and then um, went to so, Sydney and stayed at a much better hotel. So is this training for your, for your upcoming career or? Yeah, yeah. It was a conference related to, to my um, new profession. Oh, yeah. Is there anything worth, worth discussing or telling people about or? Oh, there was a, a thing on um, the, the amount of um, reserves banks have to keep and, and that, the amount of, like, you know, banks lend against their reserves. Yep. And that number's changing or um, soon, I think, and then it'll probably change again. But it was just like some quick thing showing how that affects the return on equity of, of the banks. Yep. So, so, so were they increasing the um, reserve requirements or? Yeah, I think so. I'll see if I can find that. I took a photo of the thing at the wall. Oh, the other thing is um, speakers at these conferences, I, I'm not a fan, you know, it's like, Read, read, read three or four books on, you know, some topic and then, you know, get in front of an audience and talk for 40 minutes and you're just so high level, um, you know, very superficial, but, you know, you, you sound like you're some really, you know, know-it-all on a topic. I remember talking to my brother about this years ago. Um, if, if, if person A is talking to person B and, and person B is claiming expertise in a topic – Person A can ask person B all the questions person A knows about it, mm. that topic, right? Yep. And if person B can answer all the questions, then beyond that, there's no way for person A to actually gauge a level of expertise. Yeah. So, so say I claim to be an expert on a topic and you know only three things about that topic. You ask me the three things, I answer them. Then you're like, well, that's 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 the limit of my testing. Um, now beyond that, anything he says on this topic, I have no way of telling whether it's right or wrong. And he claims to be an expert, so mm. probably an expert. Um, so yeah, it's just interesting, you know, the 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 the, the fake or, or the image of expertise. So go to go to a go to a conference and make fifteen points in an hour that you probably just googled, you know, ten minutes before, yeah. and you sound like an expert. How did you ascertain that? Did were there subjects that you had a deeper understanding of? And oh well, well, I um, I just know that's what happens. Um, yeah, not not to say they're not more knowledgeable than other people, yeah. but I, I I think they 
inflate their authority, uh, yeah. and rightly so. They're, they're out there. People are looking for gurus these days, though. Yeah, trying to be experts. Um, but I asked one person who was talking a question, and the person gave an answer that was really bad. Yeah. Well, to me, it was really bad and yeah. was like, oh, okay, this person doesn't know the answer. They've made up an answer on the spot to look like an authority. And yeah. Could you see, like, did they look sketch in their body the person language? Paused. The person was like, oh, and then like said something and I'm like, <laughs> nah, nah, you're just making that up. And yeah, you have no clue. And instead of saying, I don't know, did you how, how would the person know? Did you push it or just say thank you? No, it's like, yeah, it was left it. Yeah. 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 It was on, um, what was the question? Was, the person was talking about different management styles or something like that and, and you, you can be authoritarian or you can be collaborative and all this sort of stuff. Um, and I asked the question if uh, companies with founders like Zuckerberg or, or Bezos or whatever yeah. start off with authoritarian management styles as in their growth phase yep. with the idea that the leader has a vision and everyone has to follow the vision yep. otherwise they're just inhibiting the development of the company yeah and then once they're established the leader's vision's already been executed yeah so then they go into a more democratic form of, yep. of management and and the person um i can't remember what their answer was but it's like i bet you their all- management training is uh lead and manage people from uh cert for diploma <laughs> <laughs> level studies yeah, yeah. but the, the person's answer was, was, was pretty ordinary and didn't it just seemed like the person made up an answer. And it's like, well, you can't actually answer that question unless you are very familiar with the founding and progression of Facebook and Amazon, right? Well, how, how so the answer, the answer would be, I wasn't at Amazon or, or Facebook. Yeah. I could speculate this, that, and the other. There's yeah. you know, research, there's X, Y, Z. But the person actually gave an answer about Amazon and Facebook from yeah, memory. Okay. And it's just like, no, nah, you weren't there. You don't yeah. know. Well, I mean, I'd imagine like while there might be some commonalities to it, it would be like highly individual, diverse situations, right? Like, well, uh, my my theory is that when you have a founder-led company, that you go along with the founder's vision. Yeah, you, the founder is is this inspirational leader, and what they're basically God. Yeah, and and you execute their vision, and yeah. eventually, you, you the vision's executed, and then you still got a business to run. Mm. And another stuff would happen where people get more ideas to share after that. It's like that really good TV show about the computer game that I like. What's it called? Mythic Quest. Hmm? You guys haven't seen Mythic Quest? No. Uh, anyway, watch Mythic Quest. Yeah, okay. But they, they have a visionary leader. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. So how, how's your fortnight, James? Any Anything to speak of in terms of investing or interesting stories you've come across? No, no. Um, I've been kind of having a think about and watching stuff on – uh, energy markets and yeah. but I guess the like longer term implications of um, whether it's anything from sort of the war in Ukraine to technology yeah. developments and stuff that that's kind of uh, been on my mind yeah um, so which is kind of interesting because there's kind of a lot of short-term issues there with are going to get through the sum through the winter. Yes, um, but on the flip side, it's you know uh, with things like you know electric vehicles and transforming energy systems. Yep. You know, demand for oil. Kind of topics have been on my mind. Yeah, yeah. It, it's funny because like since you've been sort of sharing and mentioning that, I'm I seem to be viewing the world through a bit of a lens mm-hmm. like that. Uh, like I just I went to uh, visit a friend in in Rockhampton and. Uh, from I guess just personal observation, and then some later reading, uh, a place that's really built on on 
coal, mm. coal and beef by the looks of things. And um, but wondering, so a, 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 a place like that that's so dependent on coal and all the related manufacturing and support industries, if we're moving away from coal, mm. do places like that just implode? Like, I mean, it's quite possible it could be, you know, the modern version of a Detroit or whatever that, yeah. that, that um, you know, the, the industry sort of leaves town. It's, it is a big social issue because you um, – it's kind of like, you know, as we move – forward with technologies mm. that although overall we might be better off mm. there are going to be winners and losers yeah um and how do you have a have a fair social transition is a, is a is a difficult yeah. question isn't it and uh, also it just seemed like there's such a big buy-in that it would take a long long time to walk away from something like that it's not like oh we've got batteries now and like uh because it just seemed like like looking at it it seemed like like solid things that you could invest in, you know, like get exposure to coal or get exposure to the, um, like the machinery, like the Caterpillar and Hastings Deerings and West Track and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And Um, and I mean, mining's not going away, right? It's, 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 it might be mining different things. Yes. Um, but then you have the problem of, is that new material that's required, um, you know, reasonably close to that, Location and it might not be. It might yeah. be that the, the town is is kind of you know uh, substantially adversely affected, but some other town has yeah you know created yeah yeah. And, and um, I was trying to look for this. There was a a story in the Australian that basically echoed that. That's like the um, to chase sustainability, mm-hmm. we're going to have to mine more than we ever have before. Yep. And um, so yeah, I don't know. I was wondering what you guys thought of that in terms of. Um, you know, obviously electric vehicles coming, sustainability, and you know how how can someone like me sort of position themselves in terms of investments? And because I, I think in the next decade to so maybe two decades, mining is going to be very big because yeah. we have to transform the whole you know transportation system and the whole energy system. Yeah. Um, and. I'm not sure if this is too idealistic, but you, a lot of the stuff, if you're using renewable energy, can be recycled. Like you know, things like batteries, and and you know, there's a lot of once you've got a lot of metals out of um, you know uh, renewable energy type, you know, wind turbines and mm. um, and solar panels and things. You know, you, you would hope to get to a point where it's all recycled, um, and you're just producing more efficient things twenty years later. Yeah. Um, and even stuff like batteries don't even need to be, you know, if you have a car battery, that can end up being a home battery once it's not good enough for your car. Yeah. It's the, you know, it can be a, a you know, an energy storage system for your house. So yeah. that, you know, has a second life um, beyond that. So so you, you'd that to me would be the big difference is that you could have a, have a situation where mining's enormous for, yeah. you know, 10 or 20 years and then it kind of, gets ramped down a lot yeah okay well, at the conference i was at there was a futurist talking yeah and he said there are places in the world that are doing solar roads what what constitutes a futurist someone that's like interested in future technologies or they're optimistic or something well or? i guess just try to divine the future yeah it seems yeah. like it seems like the best job to have snake really. oil salesman <laughs> well well i mean it's just like 
this is possible in the future. <laughs> I'm a futurist, it's sweet. Yeah. Real futurists. Um, but anyway, yeah, this, this person was talking about, um, well, he just made a comment about some places that are, are, are doing, um, yeah, solar panels as roads. So you remember, did I bring yeah. this up a, like a yep. while ago? Um, yeah, in I one of the podcasts, the cars. That, that you know, maybe they could do solar panel roads. So I'm, I'm a futurist. That's um, that's a fact. Um, and he's wearing a spacesuit. Yeah. Um, with, with with the mining or whatever, basically we need stuff, and it mm. gets mined. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, and and how does someone position themselves for whatever future they envision with with mining? Let's say the green era or whatever. You'll find that BHP, all these major mining companies do their own research in this and and they'll have reports and even any company really will probably at some point, a mining company put out an investor presentation Yep, and they'll come up with this rosy picture about why their particular product they mine has got a great future and and they'll cite reports. Mm. So you can find the reports that they're citing. Uh, Obviously, a mining company talking about the future of their product, they're going to be incredibly biased and, yep. and they, they, they won't talk down the future of their product yeah. even, even if that's a, a strong consequence uh, yeah. but yeah you can find information from the investor reports and, and the reports the companies put out um, I think BHP put out something not long ago uh, talking about the future of copper yeah. and, and their prediction was that uh, in the second half of this decade it'll be a, a big demand supply demand imbalance yes um but for the next few years if anything there might be an oversupply they might have said yeah um, which i've seen other places as well yeah so yeah the the miners themselves will put out reports then you've got councils like i don't know the you know, international resource council or whatever but there are various organizations in these spaces that put out research reports like i'm pretty sure if you just googled now uh nickel market research report mm. you'd find a bunch of stuff yeah and then it's just trying to work out how much that stuff is in, in, in your band of what you might consider realistic, yeah. I guess. To, so, to, yeah, I was just going to say, to, to me, the may, maybe this is an area where you, where you start out with a sort of a macro level of what you think that is going to occur because if, you, if you're not sort of buying into the energy transition story, it's hard to then, you know, buy into our lithium miner. Or how do you even form an, an opinion on what might occur? Like how, how so so if you want to invest in mining, have an opinion about what the future will be and then do your research on that. And that's like cool. Mm. But like just because I've got an opinion on what the future will be, how do I know that's not a crap opinion? That's a good and question. All sorts of stuff. <laughs> but but I, the way, the way I personally would approach it is um uh get informed about the different arguments. So yeah. get, get informed about, you know, listen to, say, you know, uh, you know, oil resource scarcity type people yeah. and also listen to, you know, the the tech people who are like, well, we're going off oil and, and you know, we're going to be, you know, have electric vehicles and, and you know, renewable energy and storage and um, because, you know, you can you – can, it's very easy to get access to mm. – different people's opinions um, and in the end you've kind of got to make a decision and, and a decision can be I think they're both right I'll cover myself <laughs> yeah my little brother says opinions are like assholes everyone has one <laughs> yeah I like that one I say that a lot too actually <laughs> but, but the, the opinions are actually very valuable um, if they've got 
you know, if they've got a, you know, a, a strong argument behind them. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're, that's my, they're actually more valuable than facts. It's, 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 uh, I, I don't know if I've had any original thoughts in my life. I might think I do, but I might, every thought of mine might have already been thought by somebody else and all my opinions are someone else's opinions I'm just regurgitating. So, yeah, opinions are very useful. Um, so the other uh, thing from a value investing perspective, though, is you find if you're into mining and, and you're really doing it well, you find something that everyone says sucks and is going down. Mm. So I don't know what that might be these days, but there's something that there's got no future. It's just, it's, it's all over for this particular thing. Mm. And if you can find investments in that space that everyone thinks is terrible, that is still good investments. Yeah. That's, that's the, that's the magic place to be in mining investments. Yeah. So. A couple of years ago, coal, thermal coal, is, is yeah, everyone's talking it down and how dead it is. I'd been waiting to buy Whitehaven and New Hope coal for ages, and they actually went into my price range where I was willing to buy them, but I thought, they're going to go lower. I'll get them even cheaper. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, China, for example. So, uh, thermal coal, bad for the environment. We're moving away from it. Uh, apparently, places are shutting down. Coal power stations. My, this is the narrative, right? And so, can, uh, can so thermal coal? Like, what are the different types of coal? You got and- coking coal and thermal coal. Coking coal is used in steel production. Yeah, thermal coal is used to produce heat. It's for, for um, electricity generation, and and the, I guess the key difference is that um, we have an alternative for thermal coal in terms of um, other, you know, electricity sources. Yep. For coking coal, we don't really have a you know, a another means of... No, there is. I think it's hydrogen or something like that. Like, And, and I think with the arc furnaces using electrical arc or whatever, I think they get to a temperature that doesn't need coking coal. Uh, and yeah, coking... That, this co- is not widespread. This and is- coking burns hotter or something or... Yes. I don't know, yeah. but I just know it's using steel. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But but I think in terms of the economics of those things, they're, they're not... They're not quite there that basically all steel mills, almost steel mills around the world are still using... Coking coal. I would imagine, though, that when they replace the P property plant equipment kind of thing, they're probably moving to a lot of the arc furnaces. Like, you know, I don't know what an arc furnace is, but it's, I think it uses electricity at high heat or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but back to the thermal, whatever, it's, it's got a bad story, right? Um, China was stopping the import of Australian thermal coal to teach Australia a lesson for uh, questioning COVID things or whatever. So, and coal's not sexy. It's going to kill the planet, and China doesn't want it anymore from us. So that's those are really bad stories for Australian coal. Mm. Um, and on the other hand, we apparently have the cleanest coal in the world. Yep. And most developing nations, uh, well, a lot of South Asia, a lot of Asia, even China, still building heaps of coal power stations. So the narrative is no one's going to use coal anymore, and China doesn't want our coal. The other, you know, what look like facts on the ground and plan things are that Australia's coal is the cleanest. Mm. So if if any coal is going to be burnt, ours is the best. Yep. Uh, if we're not getting rid of coal globally, then and then coal's being burnt in the greenest way possible, then it would be Australian coal. And there's still coal plants being built all over the place. Uh, yeah. And just just on in terms <laughs> of valuation matters. Mm. So going, you know, you know, comes up all the time, but Warren Buffett, I think Berkshire Hathaway, the actual company, was a some sort of manufacturing company that that um, Warren Buffett originally. I think was it textiles. Textiles yeah, textile company. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, sorry, textile. Yeah, yeah, sorry. 
I'll, I'll let you guys. But basically, the what's um, Warren Buffett's favorite color? <laughs> <laughs> the, it, you know, it's a, it was a cigar butt. Basically, he worked out that the plan and equipment was worth more than you know. Uh, even though the company was going bankrupt, mm. or sorry, the profits were decreasing and it was going to end up ending. Mm. Um, but he worked out that the future cash flows from from basically the future profits, decreasing profits, and then selling off the plant equipment was worth more than the the, the share price. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure someone can correct me on this story, but basically it was even though it was a company in decline that was going to go going to close down in the future, yeah. it was still a cigar butt for him. It was a, you know, a value company where you could just pick it up off the street for, you know, the, 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 I guess the image with the cigar butt is, you know, you, you find they're free, they're on the street, but you can get three or four puffs out for free. Yeah. <laughs> um, on that Berkshire Hathaway story, I, I recall hearing a thing that Warren Buffett said it's his worst investment ever. Because um, he, I think he'd bought it at a cheap price and then corporate activity was such that I think the company itself, Berkshire Hathaway, wanted to buy his shares off him and then he was like, no, I'll buy your shares off you and there was some haggling back and forth and then eventually it was agreed that Warren Buffett would take over the company and it was like $32 a share or something. And they'd all agreed to it. And then when they sent the contracts, they'd done it at 32 and 25 cents, 32 dollars and 25 cents. And that rubbed Buffett the wrong way. And he's like, right, I'm taking this company over. And then ended up paying more than he should have for it um, because on principle, he didn't like how they changed the numbers <laughs> when they'd agreed to something. So yeah, apparently that was his worst. He's like said that it's the worst investment ever. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was the beginning of obviously this but, miracle but, of finance. Yeah, but mm. but Warren Buffett, Buffett was known for like c- cigar butt investing before yeah, he ran into Charlie Munger. Yeah, the yeah. Benjamin Graham thing was cigar butts, wasn't it? And Charlie Munger apparently talked about buying quality, mm. enduring quality. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Mm. And and I guess the Munger has had a big impact, positive impact. Mm. Um, but but with the coal thing, so the. The story was bad for coal and the share price of New Hope and Whitehaven coal, big coal producers in Australia, was dropping. And also uh, New Hope needed to get a, a license. I think they still haven't got it, New Ackland or something like that. Um, so I was I was watching the price drop and drop and just waiting for it to go even more down. And was, I went to load up on it. Now they're like, uh, like they, they got, like I think Whitehaven got to $1.10 or something and New Hope got to... 90 cents I can't remember but I was, I was greedy I was like mm. I was still got to go cheaper now they're like $4 each because yeah, right. um, Germany's importing coal now I think they're burning burning wood pellets or something in some of these places everyone wants coal again <laughs> so like um, really wood pellets yeah coal, and coal, coal went from like $60 a ton to $400 a ton or whatever yeah right with the with the supply demand issues because obviously no one's if someone said a bank is lending, oh, can you lend me a billion dollars to make a coal mine? Banks would be like, well, that doesn't meet our ESG stuff and that's a terrible idea. Haven't you heard the newspapers? Coal's dead. So the best cure for low prices is low prices because mm. people stop reinvesting in the mines. Then all of a sudden you get supply constraints and, and the demand exceeds supply and at the margin the price goes up. So so for mining, that, that's the way to do it. Find something everyone hates, but you can still see good value in. Yeah. So is that like, um, I guess, oil as well? Because the Berkshire Hathaway is upping their stake in Occidental. Like to, like they're going to own like half of it now, I think. And that's, that's all oil. 
Yeah, I don't know. Everything I read is really bullish on oil, though. So, mm. and I think you're reading bullish stuff on oil too. I don't know anywhere where it's not bullish. Well, well, but look, um, yeah. during during um, COVID, when it went to minus twenty dollars on one of the exchanges, mm. that that might have been a time for someone who has done their research into the market. If if the share prices dropped uh, to reflect that, which I don't think they did that much, but that 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 might have been a time to say. Let's do oil. Mm. So there's there's times where various commodities are just so out of favour, it's not funny. Yeah. And if you can find good businesses in that space with an awareness of the, the, the cycle, the commodity cycle, where eventually if there's no good pricing in the commodity, it starts being produced and then all of a sudden there's a big supply-demand imbalance. And when you say commodity cycle, is that it's sort of falling in and out of favour or...? Demand, yeah. So yeah. so the idea is, let, let's look at iron, okay, yeah. in Australia. Um Iron, iron ore is over $100 a tonne at the moment, yeah. and that, that's a good price for iron. So if, if companies can, they'll start producing iron. And you see, I've seen like Fenex Resources, I think, FEX was their code. I think they had the idea of a mine that's going to last a year and a half. Whatever, and their the share price was pretty good. But if you if you say okay, well, based on the cash flows you're going to get, it's an open pit. It's, it's a bit of a cigar, but then you got other ones that are, are producing at like ninety US dollars a ton, and and they're projecting to be producing in the future for several years. And all these all these crappy marginal businesses are, are viable in this high price environment, right? So it's bringing all this iron supply into the market. Maybe not a big uplift because it's lots of small companies but if you make that global and it's and the prices are high for a while you get more and more entrance into the market and and they'll be creating a, a supply of iron so eventually the supply increases and if the demand stays flat or decreases which are both possible things then you get an imbalance where there's potentially more supply than is required and the price just tanks and all of a sudden iron's at $40 a tonne. All these businesses have gone bust. The investors have lost all their money. BHP's not making much money. Fortescue, now they've paid off their debts. They're not making much money, but they're not looking precarious. Um, all, all the big companies are, are still around because they're low-cost producers, but everyone else is just gone. And the big companies aren't doing expansions they talked about doing because the prices just collapse and there's no point. So there's there's a... Uh, the supply has dropped in iron for ages and the markets absorbed whatever oversupply there was. And then for some reason or another, there's a, a boom in, in the demand for iron. Uh, in, in, inter, in, in India enters 21st century on steroids and, and, and are building trains and skyscrapers and doing what China did. But all those miners that were there during the boo times, they're all gone, except for a bunch of the majors who can afford to produce at 40 bucks or to make money when it's $40 a tonne. But all of a sudden there's massive demand. And again, it's at the margin, the the pricing of, of the commodity. And all of a sudden, iron's at 150 bucks a tonne again. Yeah. And so, they're making money hand over fist. Yeah. And I, I guess the sort of the, the point is that, you know, how you have, you know, an elastic product or an inelastic product. So an elastic product will, you know, if the price moves up, there'll be the ability to bring on lots more supply um, to meet that demand. But mining and, you know, energy type, you know, oil products, oil and gas type products uh, tend to be inelastic in that, you know, you've got to have made the investment five years ago or 10 years ago. Um, so if you get a sudden sort of increase in demand or you get some sort of, say, war in Ukraine where, you know, you might have a restriction in supply, 
there's no ability or very little ability to bring on a, a new project to replace that in a short time frame. So you kind of get this big lag in, in terms of, um, I guess, supply trying to meet demand. And so, and it's also a lot of these projects, as Andy's previously said, of um, once you get them up and running, you've, you've got all this sunk cost. So you just have to keep producing. Um, so it means that you can end up with ongoing supply, even though that supply isn't needed or in reverse, mm-hmm. it's clear that you've got a, a need to increase your supply, but it's going to take five years to to do that. So in the meantime, the price is just going to be high because you have to n- kill the demand for it effectively. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you get that? Elastic versus inelastic? Please clarify. Well, the, the inelastic and, and, and elastic supply. So uh, Barcelona signs Kylian Mbappe, for example. That'd be so sweet. But um, <laughs> there's, there's a massive demand for T-shirts to say Mbappe on them. Mm-hmm. And Barcelona can meet that demand because they just have these T-shirts, they're easy to produce, and they stamp his name on the back. Yep. Right? That's, that's elastic. Um, so that stretches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Inelastic is uh, building a hydro dam that takes 10 years to yeah, build. Yeah, okay. It's, it's, you can't just say, okay, we need more hydroelectricity, let's click our fingers, and all mm. of a sudden the world's got hydroelectrical dams it, or hydroelectricity dams. It, it, takes, it takes years and years, planning, environmental permits, engineering, all that sort of stuff. So well, look at look at Europe actually. Okay, um, they've got a power problem at the moment. Yep. They need Russian gas. Why don't they just import gas from the rest of the world? Well, they could, but they need to have all these gas stations that can effectively take the gas off the ships and then distribute it into the gas network. Right? They can't just click their fingers mm. and make all these giant places where port areas are to accept the gas that's coming out of ships. Why doesn't Russia just send all the gas to China? Because it takes time to build a gas pipeline to China. Yeah. These things are all inelastic. Yeah, okay. It take, yeah. takes time. It takes planning. So even if there's a massive demand for gas in Europe right now, and even if the world wants to give gas to Europe right now, or yeah, sell can't, gas can't to Europe, respond. it can't respond. It can't necessarily even make it into Europe. Yeah. Uh, world hunger. There's enough food in the world for everybody. Yeah. And, and we should have world hunger solved, but the supply chains are highly problematic. So even yeah. if there's a will to feed people, to actually get it there is a problem. There's, there's mm. these inelasticities. Yeah, okay. Okay. Mm. So uh, I've come across a lot of content on, 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 on particular on YouTube, done a bit of reading and stuff, but the what's happening or – I guess what people are speculating is what's happening in China. So the uh, China. <laughs> Can we all say it like Donald Trump at least? China. Once? How, so in, China. How does he say it? China. 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 <laughs> and and you can get the you know get taken off uh, whatever you know internet service we're on for saying China virus. <laughs> China. Um, the so like the what's. Uh, been described as like a Ponzi scheme with their, their real estate and the knock-on effects it's having into banking and people not being able to access their money. Uh, um, so uh, are you guys familiar with that? So, yeah. so there's, there's something something along the lines of uh, uh, property developments were not going ahead because they weren't yeah. getting financed and then people were refusing to 
to uh, make meet their commitments that they'd made because the the product was not being buyers yeah. well, apparently of the property were refusing to meet their commitments to yeah. the property developers. Well, because yeah. they're saying because like culturally, uh, properties uh, like the the most important thing to have uh, at the moment or has been for a long time in China. So people will sign up for mortgages and start paying them way ahead of time. And basically, the construction companies are using it like a Ponzi scheme. They just instead of using the the money to to build these these developments, they're um, they're using it to sort of market it to the next one. Yep. And um, and then yeah, then there's all these protests and things like that. Um, so they look a lot like startups in that case, and don't they? they don't make any profit, <laughs> but they're expanding their client base. So that that covers the cash flow shortfalls yeah. for non viable businesses. So if, if that happens and it collapses, like uh, what, what, what do you guys see any like? further effects from that like how's it going to affect the rest of the world because i imagine something big happens in china it's going to going to going to make the rest of the world shit the bed as well um, so so just with a little bit of background as well yeah because um, people i'm i'm not saying i'm not sort of disagreeing with the, the premise but people have been saying that the chinese have been making cities you know unoccupied cities for ghost for, cities well, ghost cities yeah for for i've Probably twenty years, something like that. Uh, uh, and yeah, I was watching a highlight reel of, of uh, apartment places getting get, like getting detonated, and like twenty years old, no one ever lived in them. Yeah, thing. yeah. And and um, so there, there has been this kind of stuff has been speculated, or, or similar stuff has been mm. speculated about before. Um, I've heard people argue, no, 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 but you know, the Chinese are much more centrally planned. So what they do is they they build somewhere and then there's no one there and then they'll go, okay, this entire manufacturing industry will now live there. Yeah, okay. And so they, they do have the ability to fill cities up. Um, but it also, as you've said, it does look uh, like, you know, th- there is an sort of a – it's not a natural mar- – it doesn't look like a natural uh, market in terms of their property market, as in, sorry, a, a, you know, a kind of market that you would see in, in um, you know, other parts of the world. Um, what, do you, what do you think, Andy? Well, was the, the average, historical average was something like a property being four to six times household income yep. around the world. Uh, richer countries may be closer towards six, poorer countries closer towards four times household income. Uh, that's that's been standard, I think, or was standard for ages. And and then we had the property booms, Canada, Australia, and, and I think we've moved close to 10 mm. times household income. But I think some of the China ones are like 40 yeah, yeah. Yeah, times right. household income. So just on terms of like actual value and what, what makes sense, then that, that seems ridiculous. I, I remember bringing up before this thing that to get, attract a woman, you need to have real estate. So... That's that's might be part of the what's fueling purchases in real estate. It's it's a sexual attractant. Mm. You will not find a mate if if you're not a real estate owner. Sorry, I was just going to say the other thing that is, is seems to be culturally strange is the unoccupied investment property. Mm. Um, that that seems to be a, a yeah. It's like land banking, I guess. Mm. Ultimately, it's land banking with. Shells in apartments, just empty space in apartments. Land banking, so just buying land and hanging onto it and then yeah. selling it. Yeah, so I mean, like, imagine imagine you bought land outside of Cooma, mm. right, um, 30 years ago. It's 
it's probably gone up in value a fair bit in the last yeah. 30 years. Imagine if you bought an apartment in the middle of Monaco 30 years ago. Yeah. It was, there weren't even walls in it. It was just like literally the concrete shell. Yeah. So it was completely unfinished. That's probably gone up in value heaps as well in the last yeah. 30 years. So if you can land bank land outside of Kuma, why can't you land bank a shell of an apartment in some place? Mm. With the idea that the city's going to expand or, or the demand for, for that real estate will expand. And if the idea as well is that wages are going up in China, maybe buying something at 40 times household income in 1980s China looks pretty sensible for 2002 China. Yeah. Uh, buying it now though what's the limit of what incomes can go up in China it also doesn't make sense because they've got this massive demographic problem yeah. if, if all these oldies are going to be dying and there's the one child policy then who's actually going to live in these places maybe there's an oversupply I remember reading I've been following the Chinese oversupply of real estate thing for a decade now because yep. it's been talked about since the GFC yeah and there's something some I can't remember the numbers but the amount of office space per capita in China I think was four or five times the office space per capita in the USA yep even though the USA was more of a service economy than the Chinese economy I'm just making the numbers up but that's the vibe if if the People who are buying property in China are buying properties that won't ever exist. Then their wealth in those investments, you would imagine, would be gone, right? Unless the government bails them out. And if the developers don't have any more demand for their properties and it's a Ponzi-like scheme where they're, they're needing new investors to fund the development of their, of their properties and, and that game's over then there's no developments either. It sounds like a giant um, shite show yeah. will be in China. And I've seen the things of people lining up outside of regional banks. And yeah. even in Sydney, there were people lining up outside a bank. So I think because I don't know in how- In Sydney? Like- yeah, there's like some bank in Chinatown. There was a Chinese bank and people were lining up outside off to make withdrawals apparently. Yeah, right. Yeah. I was just going to say, I wonder if, if uh, Japan is, you know, 1989 Japan is a good- sort of reference point where, you know, how there was massive property boom and there's, you know, there's that statistic everyone waves around about the Imperial uh, Palace uh, being worth more than the entire US state of California. Um, yeah, really. Uh, and, you know, if you look at Japanese land prices or and and house prices, they're, they've never recovered. They've never come back. That was, you know, ni- late 1980s. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're so thirty odd years now, isn't it? Yeah, and so, so well, they they fell and then never, rec- or they just stayed static at that, uh, that high price. They, they fell down probably until about two thousand and five ish, yep. and they've recovered a little bit, but they're yeah. well down on um, on where they were in nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, wow. Hey. Chinese youth unemployment's apparently twenty percent. I don't know if that's true. So, huh? That's that's another thing. Um, I, I remember hearing or reading something ages ago about someone, an economist in China, and there were all these Chinese people digging a massive trench with shovels. It's, it's probably heard this story, James. Um, a massive trench with shovels, and the economist was like, oh, you guys have all these bulldozers and, and earth-moving equipment. Why, why are they using shovels? And the Chinese guy was like, oh, it's an employment project. It's not about doing it efficiently. It's about keeping people employed. Yeah. And the economist is like, well, why don't you give them spoons instead of shovels to dig then? Like, you know, make it yeah. even slower to do. So um, there's just been, been this argument that 
the people who run the municipalities or whatever in China are given targets. Yeah. The, you'll have X GDP growth yeah. in this time period. Uh, make it happen. Yeah. This has to happen. And, and the low-hanging fruit for that has been real estate development. Yeah. And you have the corruption of the real estate developers with the people in local municipalities or whatever mm. these areas, you know, states, territories, whatever they are in China. So it looks like from what I've been following, it's a massive rigged game has been for ages yeah it's to fudge the numbers for the central planners and and it, at some point it's unsustainable building stuff that no one wants yeah so that's 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 the vibe um i have but you said james that people have been making this claim for years um yes yes that's true i was just going to say just when you're talking about uh targets for central planners that that is actually in the in the great leap forward um they had the the central government set targets for steel production yeah and uh, and food production, and basically resulted in a massive famine, and you know I think it was something like twenty million people died, mm. um, uh, basically because the um, regional governments were saying we tra- were competing with each other to say how much you know food they were going to produce, and the central government was then saying, okay, well now we can move people over to to steel production because we've got enough food, right? Uh. So all Basically, all of the the regional governments were, were saying, "Oh, well, we're going to have a record harvest. We're going to have a record harvest, mm. so that they could effectively win the competition." Um, and the result was that it was all nonsense. Um, and the all that had happened was the central government had been moving people who needed to farm food yeah. off to to make you know pig iron. Um, yeah, and it was a, a massive massive disaster. Um, sorry, what was the second bit of your? Question, yeah. Oh, I, did, I was oh, just making it go on. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I remembered because, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, um, for instance, listened to, been to sort of, um, presentations from Platinum Asset Management and they've, they've said they've kind of, in the past, I'm not saying recently, but in the past, they've said, no, no, no. Um, that's a misunderstanding of how the, the Chinese government works, yeah. uh, because, because it's a central planned economy, they will, decide, you know, in their five-year plan what industries that they want to have and then they'll go out and they will, you know, create a city yeah, um, and all the infrastructure that they need to have that the, you know, whatever of whatever industry it is, might be, you know, electric vehicles now or whatever it is, um, uh, and there'll be this empty city that gets built mm. and then the central government will um, then say, okay, all these people, all these companies have to move here mm-hmm. uh, in order to, you know, create this new industry. Um, but but I, I, yeah, I, I would be concerned about, you know, at what point, you know, if you have a declining population, uh, which looks like China will have going forward. Yeah. Um, at what point you just end up with a lot of empty houses. Yeah. The other thing on that, though, is I think – they're not very urbanised still compared to the rest of the world. I could be wrong with that. So if if Australia, for example, is ninety percent yeah. urban populations, if China's not that urbanised compared to other places, maybe the stages of economic development are that, such that you that become key- more urbanised, which means they build houses in the right spots, not in the countryside. Isn't that the? I don't, I don't want to bring say his name again. Peter Zion. Um, <laughs> That, that, isn't that one of his reasons for why the demographic collapse is coming to China because they urbanised so quickly? 
Yes. Over a generation? Yes, because he, he, he argues, which I think is um, correct, that when you move from the countryside to the city, it's, yeah. uh, you know, say children become, you know, go from being a source of, of future labour. Yeah. Free labour. Yeah. yeah. To, to on, a, on what is effectively a family company, you know, yeah. a family farm or whatever, um, uh, to someone you've got, you know, you've got to pay the expenses to educate and to, yeah. to you know, um, get get to the point where they're independent. Yeah. Um, so it's a different economic system and it, it encourages you to have, you know, fewer children because yeah. they're they're much more expensive um, mm. and there's no, like, fi- there's no financial payback that you can get if yeah. you're not running your own farming business. Yeah, yeah. So let, let's just say the property sector in China collapses and there's all these bankruptcies. The question is, who do they owe the money to? Yep. So to non-Chinese or Chinese? And what difference would that make? So if they owe it to non-Chinese, let's say they owe it to American bondholders yep. and they default on those bonds and let's say there's a lot of American bondholders who experience these defaults, then that could have some sort of um, ripple effect across the markets in the West. So these, um, like, uh, say, American bondholders, are these people that are like, I, I bought a bond in China? Yeah, so Evergrande issued bonds are saying you lend us $100 million now, we'll yeah. give you that $100 million face value in five years plus 9% interest. And that's what you classify as a corporate bond as opposed to a government bond. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So if you have all these bondholders, uh, let's say an American company did it, right? An American bank, let's just go with that. American yeah. bank bought these Evergrande bonds and now they've got that bond and they're using that as collateral for other things mm. so they've now said i'll you know person or institution x mm. lend me 500 million dollars here's my collateral it's this evergrand bond you know they're good for it the chinese are central plan is nothing could ever go wrong so then another person is now holding that bond who isn't the person who bought it but it's collateral and then they pass it on as collateral all of a sudden you have this thing in the system where there's there's these pieces of collateral there's this piece of collateral that's the evergrand bond that all these people are relying on to have value and if it becomes worthless, then all these transactions and deals made between these institutions in America are all just, you know, massively challenged and kind of going up in smoke. Mm. And then, then you could have um, problems around that. That's like the derivatives in, in the GFC. The one person's problem becomes a whole system's problem in some senses because everyone's relying on these instruments to actually have value and, and be paid when they need to be paid. Yeah. So that there could be a big ripple effect if, if it was foreign bondholders. But I think it's not I think it's mostly domestic bondholders. Yep. I think. Yeah. With the could, I mean, stuff. Uh, that that sounds right. I, I don't know the data myself. But yeah, that would be the big question for me is this um you know, because obviously it sounds similar uh if it is uh, you know a whole lot of foreign bondholders to the to the GFC that, you know, you, you have all these flow-on effects all over the world. Um, but if it's mostly contained within China, you wonder uh, to what extent the Chinese government would step in and, um, I guess, try and make people whole and the consequences of, of trying to do that would be... Um, interesting. I'm not sure if I'd, I mentioned this in one of the podcasts or if I just did this in a conversation with somebody, but let's suppose that the real estate goes bust in China. Apparently, Xi's not happy with the real estate um, anyway. It goes bust. All these uh, Chinese families now pull money into real estate that's just 
not going to ever be built and and they, they've lost all their money, right? So then the Chinese government swoops in and says, we'll make you whole mm. based on your social credit score. Oh, yeah. And then all of a sudden you have the choice between bankruptcy or or being a good... good oh, sorry, can you repeat that last bit about they'll, that? They'll make you whole based on your social credit score. So then it, it's, it's a way of using uh, debt to control the population, uh, much like the IMF has been accused of doing globally for a long time or, or other lenders from the West have been accused of doing, yeah. uh, using debt to then control other governments and things. Oh, is that, is that like um, when they talk about the debt trap that the, 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 the China's putting countries into? Yeah, like, this is the thing the IMF's Nelson been accused Wright. of as yeah, well. Yeah. But yeah, the idea is um, IMF, China, whatever you want, um, yeah. country needs money, we'll give you money, you owe us this money. Yeah. Uh, oh, look, you can't pay your money. Um, we, we, you know, these things happen. Uh, we would like you to do this for us now and we yeah. won't make you go bankrupt because you can't pay the money. We won't call in the loan. Yeah. Well, we've got this little sword over your head now. Yeah. We can make you go bankrupt any second. But if you guys just do this, then we won't. Accept a port. Accept our military for a little while. Uh, yeah. Change your industries to this. Uh, allow yeah. more of our investments, whatever it is. Um, that that's the way debt has has been seems to have been used internationally for a long time. So mm. why not apply that to a domestic population? Mm. In fact, some people think that when they do the digital banking with central mm. banks, that that will be happening to us. So who knows? Mm. Maybe maybe we'll have a China like experience where our social credit scores will be done by digital central banks. Mm. Yeah, that's it's a bit. It is a spooky sort of area. Whether it's you looking at that social credit score system or even the, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, if you have a central bank digital currency yeah. that, that you can then have, say, dollars that expire or dollars that you can direct people to spend on specific things. Um, yeah, so you could, could have a lot more, you know, you could look at it positively and go, well, now the, the central bank has more control over, um, you know, stimulus and, and you know, cooling the economy down in reverse or whatever. Uh, but you can look at it in, in at, well, now they actually just can decide what, you know, who will succeed and who will fail in, a, in, a, in an economy because they just decide, you know, where people should spend their money because they can't spend it somewhere else. Even in Australia. So we, we, we like our property in Australia. Uh, imagine you had a population that was up to their eyeballs in debt with property, we, well, I think we have pretty historically high debt with property. I could be wrong. I think there's debt to GDP. I think we're in the higher end of that. But um, so you've got a population that's got lots of debt and and it's tied into their property prices. There's there's this fear that a collapse in the property markets will make everyone poorer or, or feel poorer, what, you know, whichever one of the two it is. So the governments can then use that fear to manipulate the population in in their what they vote for. Mm. Don't vote for this because if you do, your house prices will go down heaps and you'll you'll be underwater. Mm. That was that was the election with Bill Shorten. Mm. Don't don't vote Labor because your property prices will go down. They want to get rid of negative gearing. Mm. It's going to kill property prices, and I think a lot of people voted with that fear. Yeah, um, because of property prices. So. This, this social credit score from China that I'm speculating could be a tool that's used, I'm not saying it would be, but you know, it's, we're, we're not far removed from that in, in Western societies where people are up to 
their eyeballs in debt for various things. It's it's a fear of, of of loss that can make us make voting decisions. And imagine you had a imagine you kept a property bubble or if it's not a bubble, property prices going up in the West, right? And eventually we're at 20 times earnings. Like household incomes have not kept up with the increase in property prices. Yep. It's, so at some point it has to be unsustainable. Let's say you get to the point where it's unsustainable and everyone's got all these debts. Yeah. And then the government's like, all right, um, we can eliminate all these debts but if we're eliminating the debts because it's going to collapse if we don't, you're all going to be bankrupt. You know, the population, most of you will be bankrupt, the ones who got involved in this property stuff, even first home buyers who just pay too much. Um, if everything's collapsing, we, we can sort this out. We just want you to vote a certain way. Yep. Um, wouldn't it be some magical irony if um, the capitalism, well, not capitalism, but extreme speculation in property prices gets the population so in debt with with their their properties that then a communist political party comes and says we can solve all this if everyone just owns everything and people are like well that is better than being bankrupt in my opinion so i'm actually going to vote for communism i was someone who owned 12 properties and was a massive speculator and the most capital person I'll ever meet but now when confronted with bankruptcy you know everyone owning the same amounts really a lot better than me being 10 million dollars in debt yeah so, so you're saying that Everyone would own nothing and be happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Can you play the X Files music now? <laughs> I can't do it. Hey, the um, you sent me a, a, a photo of a chart, um, Jeff Snyder, saying we've been in depression since the GFC. Oh, okay, um, you have to show. I send you lots of photos. I'll. Uh... Appropriate photos. Real cost of living. So, uh, real median annual household disposable income uh, uh, has, so in 2008, $83,370. And it's gone up by like a thousand bucks or 900 bucks in 2019. Okay, yeah, okay. So, um, real, real. Is this Jeff Snyder? No, this is at the conference I was at. That's not Jeff Snyder. But I think maybe, okay, so this is at the conference I was at. It has real median annual household disposable income. And when it says real, that means adjusted for inflation okay. and adjusted for, um, I guess, interest rates, whatever. It's the actual real purchasing power, yep. um, what you actually get. Mm-hmm. Um, the, real, the real returns um, at the moment in if CPI in the USA is 8% and you're lending money at 4%, then the real return is actually 8 four, is the, the real return is actually 4% minus the 8% inflation. The real return is actually minus 4%. So um, what, what you actually get yeah. you know, after, uh, after inflation's factored into it, you're, you're worse off. So this chart, um, I, can't, I don't know where it's from. Uh, source, Hilda. Hilda. That's household income. 2021. I don't know what it stands for. It, it's, it's like there's a, I think it's like an annual study. It's um, household income and labour dynamics or something. Look at the, check out the big brain arm brand. That might be completely wrong, but it's a household income study. Yeah. So, so real median household disposable income has gone up. About eleven hundred bucks, if that, in the last 
well, from 2008 to 2019. So there's an increase in real wealth over 11 years of, well, slightly over 1%, mm-hmm. right? And if if developed countries are supposed so, to so have- is that income or wealth? That we, we well, household disposable income. Household, yeah. Cool. Yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. not like- um, Asset prices going up or whatever, but the the real purchasing power of disposable income, which is, I guess, applied wealth to living in the world, um, if not portfolios and, and balance sheets of, of, of stocks and housing. So it's been flat for since 2008, basically. Effectively, it's yeah. gone up slightly. But, and previously, it was on a steady increase of maybe 1% or 2% per year rather than well, you'd expect, right, in an economy that's developing, like the the growth rates are supposed to be like say two percent or three percent GDP growth per year. So if 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 that was applied to real household income, then it should have been compounding at two or three percent per year. And over nine years, that's close to maybe what is it, forty percent increase as opposed to around one percent increase. So if real household disposable income hasn't gone up for eleven years. That looks like a flat economy in that sense. Yeah, uh, it's, it's 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 not it's not growth, or it's very minimal growth. It's it's a lost decade, really. Yes, it's our lost decade. So I'll yeah. probably send you that. Yeah, because um, Jeff Snyder, who I'm a fanboy of, obviously, yeah, um, has has been saying that 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 sort of stuff, like looking at charts like that, yeah. Um, and, and saying that we're, we're, we've been in depression since the GFC. We never got out of the GFC. We're still in the GFC. We just, yeah. we just don't realise it because we're being tricked by asset prices going up in some places. Yeah, okay. And that's that. And that's just a, a separate um, source. Yep. That, and that's Australian, I think, as well, whereas Snyder stuff wouldn't be Australian. It's American, yep. typically, I think, maybe global. So yeah, it's just reinforcing the Snyder argument that yep. if, you're not, if, you, if, if economy's not growing, then, then you can't say that you're you're in good times for an economy. Yep. Uh, who knows? Maybe we have to accept a post-growth society. I'm not even you know yeah. going to be too mad at that. Maybe that's just reality. It's the law of thermodynamics or something. But um, so post-growth yeah. is just get to the point of maintenance or yeah. or like cannibalism eventually. Or well, yeah. I mean, what this is suggesting is we've maintained our quality of living for yep. the last 10 years and we've yep. barely improved it. Yeah. Um, which to me doesn't seem that bad. And like, I think we we're talking, Andre, about you know, our parents, how they're pretty happy with stuff that was good when they were in their 30s yep. and 40s. Yeah. So I'm in my 30s and 40s and this, this standard of living I have now, I wouldn't consider a low standard of living. Yeah. Right. But in 40 years, if I have the standard of living I have now, people in 40 years in the Jetsons' future yeah. would be like, what a low standard of living, Andrew. Well, imagine to that. me, it'd be normal. So if it was maintained from now for 40 years onwards, it's just like oh, I maintain my standard of living. Yeah. But if it's flat, it's, 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 it hasn't gone up. And for people who come from societies where the standard of living is compounded at 2 or 3% per annum, they might look at me and say, wow, Andrew's like some, you know, communist Russian 1920s dude. Yeah. Because it is interesting in that that's household income. So it's, I guess, looking at generally that you could almost apply that as labour income. Disposable mm. income, though, I think it was. Yeah, dis- yeah, household disposable income. So it'll be obviously from, from all sources, but, but the main one is going to be labour income. Mm. Um, but at the same time, we've had a, uh, you know, a decade where asset prices have really moved up a lot and mm. consequently you get that kind of – um, you know, people who had assets have done very well. Yeah. Um, and if you go out and work for a living, you're kind of at the same level. 
Yeah, because wages yeah. haven't really gone up that much. Yeah, well, you sent you sent that uh, another chart through that so that basically says that it was like uh, distribution of wealth by wealth percentile in the top one percent. Uh, two thousand seven was thirty three percent, and now as of two twenty sixteen was thirty eight point seven, and uh, so yeah, the basically that all the the rich are getting richer. Yeah, the poor stay poor and the rich get rich. Mm. That's how it goes. Because, and everybody knows. You know that song? <laughs> everybody knows. But, but it you, know always, you, know, you know the song? No, I don't, I don't no. know anything about that song. Oh, <laughs> it's a good song. And what about this meme that you sent through? So um, you sent through the, uh, just a, like a word meme uh, with the caption, I like this. So socialism is the fire department saving your house. Capitalism is the insurance company denying your claim. Yeah, so I mean, I'm I'm anti-socialist in well, not any, I'm anti-communist. Socialism, like my understanding, of socialism is the people who are productive aspects of um, the enterprise have a stake in it. Yeah. So you're 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 you bought into your business. That's yeah. um, socialism in practice in some yeah. ways. Um, so you're you're pulling a face, James. Challenge me on it. That's fine. I'm oh, not going to argue with you. Just- I, I I that's it's. I better let you finish because it's an interesting way of looking at things because you would normally look at them the exact opposite way. You'd be mm. saying that you're participating in, in capitalism by taking ownership in your in your business, in your um, taking, you know, uh, uh, you know, your own, I guess, control over your, the capital, you know, yeah. of your, of, of as well as the labour in your business. I might have been misusing the term socialism for a long time then or misconceiving of it. But, yeah, my understanding – I mean, socialism is there's a factory and the capitalist owns a factory and all the workers work in the factory and they don't own any stake in the factory, right? That's capitalism, right? A factory owner owns all the capital. Yep. All the workers don't have capital and they just do the work and they get wages and the capitalist wears a top hat and has a monocle and all that sort of stuff. And a moustache which he twists. Yeah, <laughs> that sort of thing, yeah. Um, and then socialism is, well, actually all the workers in the factory own part of the factory too. I, I put it slightly differently, uh, I, uh, th- that you would have a situation where there is uh, no... Uh, sort of individual ownership of the of the business. So, so I would I would still put it as capitalist if you had a whole lot of people working for a business and yeah. they're shareholders in the business because yeah. they they have the the private that that private capital is is theirs and they they control it and they make decisions for it. Whereas the with socialism, you'd normally think of it as there is a factory and it's communal property, um, and uh, your uh, input into that communal property is, you know, your labour input, and and but everyone kind of gets paid the same. We're, we're kind of half like that in Australia, though, aren't we? Like we pay our taxes, and then there's for those that aren't as uh, efficient in working and and all that sort of stuff, we've got a taxation system that sort of uh, yeah, sort mean, of contributes to them. Right? Well, yeah, we're, we're all, all, all modern societies have a social element to them, and yeah. I think it's because um, people saw revolutions, communist revolutions, and we're like, well, if we don't want to experience a communist revolution, we have to be less exploitative of the domestic population. We'll give them a few things and they won't chop our heads off. And I think the thing that people kind of lose track of is that um, you, you need a combination. Like, it's it's not really – you can't really run a, you know, a total free market system where, you know, it's kind of every man for himself making – 
you know, individual contracts with, with each other and, yep. uh, because some people are at a material disadvantage or they're, they're, there's a point in their life where, you know, say, you know, after they've, you know, they've retired or whatever, or, you know, they've, they've reached a point in their life where they can't work anymore. The, you know, I think generally as, as people would agree that, you know, it's not, not really a, a, a fair system if, you know, someone just hasn't, you know, saved enough or wasn't productive enough during their life for whatever reasons was, you know, uh, then just doesn't get to live. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think, I think, and the same thing on the, you know, socialist system. We know that all, it, basically every socialist system ends up collapsing because yeah. there's no, uh, you don't have that sort of motivation to to work and it can't be properly mm. planned and all these kind of things. Um, uh, so, Wherever it is, like most, you know, people talk about, um, you know, uh, say, say, you know, the the Nordic countries or um, Scandinavian countries, whatever, being, um, you know, more socialist or whatever. But they're really just running a different capitalist system yep. uh, or combination system with of you know welfare state and um, yeah. and and capitalism. So. Mm. Yeah, I thought socialism was the workers in the factory have a stake in the enterprise, and not every factory, just the factory they're in. So that the workers in that particular factory have buy-in into that factory, and and are shareholders in the factory. But, but I wouldn't say it as private ownership. So it's it's yeah, I thought it was. No, I'm, I'm happy to be wrong on that, but that's what I thought it was. Because um, you, you, you normally in a, in a in a sort of a and it depends on what we're talking about a socialist system as well. But if you and I'm maybe I'm flicking through to actual communism that 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 you the 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 workers in the factory don't own the factory they don't they don't own anything yeah and i think that's communism yeah but look i think probably a few hours from now james will send me an email saying ha i was right because <laughs> 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 that, that that that's been known to happen yeah um anyway so the reason i sent you that yeah with um capitalism is um the insurance company denying the claim and mm. socialism is a fire department mm. putting it out is because i like i like dunking or like you know, i like i like um criticizing socialism and communism and all that sort yeah. of stuff well actually socialism i'm not so mad of in my mm. conception that i just mm. possibly made up five minutes ago the what the definition i gave i'm not so mad at as long as there's no violent compulsion to to make the owner's lose ownership for the factory workers there has to be some sort of um non-violent transition around that non, non-compulsive transition from the capitalist owning the factory to the workers also having buy-in so in andre's work for example he didn't violently or or compel with um intimidation his his boss to have him a stakeholder he bought into it and you can think of it in terms of if someone owns a company and the company is making a profit the company's going to be paying tax. Mm. So that is actually the, I guess, the welfare state or the like, the socialist component of that sort yeah. of, you know, capitalist system. It effectively makes the government a stakeholder through its... The, the, the government has a royalty. Yeah. The government's like a royalty streamer through tax <laughs> of all the companies that make, you know, profit in the country. Yeah, yeah. And then they distribute it to mm. the, the stakeholders who are the population of the country. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I just, yeah, I just thought I'd put that there because I think it's good to uh, criticizing the perversions of capitalism. I think is 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 warranted as well. Yeah. Um, so 
we have corporations that by in in law are treated like natural people to some yeah. extent. Yet, if, if you're of the Milton Friedman mold, which I often am, uh, a corporation will be a complete psychopath and no one wants to know. Like it's You've completely watch- obsessed with profit and its only motive and goal is profit. I've right? been watching, there's a, a documentary called, I think it's The Corporation. Uh-huh. But yeah, it specifically says that 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 the if you applied personality traits to a the actions of a corporation, as in the, the what it's legally required to do, like act specifically in its mm. you know shareholders' financial interest above you know uh, other um, people in society, yeah, um, then it's actually they kind of compare it to the um, archetype of a of a um, of a psychopath. Yeah, right. I haven't seen that. So it's like narcissism, but on a like a organizational level. Yeah, I, I haven't watched it recently, but yeah, that that's basically the the key argument of that. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, so anyway, capitalism at its extremes is um, you know probably highly psychotic, and and yeah. I think the insurance company denying the claim. Yep. That that's um that does smell of capitalism because. If you're an insurance company and you can get away with denying the claim and, and there's no real negative consequence, then yep. you, you probably deny the claim. It's, you know, yep. psycho-capitalism. Uh, I have this idea as well that with the moving away from villages, if you lived in a village and someone was a scumbag, there's a consequence for them in that village for being a scumbag. No one likes them in the village. They're socially isolated. These days you've got all these scumbags but we're in big cities and they're ripping off people who they don't really have to rub shoulders with ever. So there's no, no real social feedback loop. So I think so the, 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 more, the, bigger, the bigger societies are, the more people can be absolute scumbags and just never be seen by the people they've been scumbags to. Now, have you been listening to, to Jordan Peterson on Lex Friedman? No. Uh, oh, I saw he, he popped up. And I saw another video he hooked into the Australian government. Yeah, right. Oh, someone's calling up about a uh, online RSA, I reckon. <laughs> They've got a shift probably tonight or tomorrow. And they're like, oh, I just submitted something. Well, yeah. we might better make sure we don't hear their voice. That yeah, nah, that, the, 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 um, it's not going to be a The answering thing. machine says, don't leave a message, just email us. All right. I'm just going to talk over it now in case there's stuff happening. So that... That song where it says, everybody knows. It's a good song. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, I want to make my point after you finish. Oh, okay, <laughs> just do it. As long as we're talking over whatever message might be there, I'm okay. just trying to protect the privacy. It's just going okay. boop now, though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, now people are like, because it, it, the message tells you not to leave a message. Yeah. All right. So, so, so my, my only point was you're talking about psychopaths and yeah. cities and stuff. But, but Jordan Peterson was saying... Uh, that there's a, a like kind of a natural level of psychopathy or, or uh, you know percentage of the population that are I guess like sociopaths um, and so uh, and he's saying generally it doesn't get below two percent and doesn't kind of get above five percent and the reason is that once it gets um, above five percent or gets towards five percent then people uh, come across uh, you know, sociopaths um, frequently enough that they're switched on, and it's very hard to be a sociopath when people uh, expect you to, you know, are, are very suspicious. Or um, yeah, okay. And then once it gets 
down towards 2% of the population, then it's very easy to be a, a, a psychopath or a, a sociopath. I'm you know, probably not using the terminology correctly, but um, because uh, people rarely come – like there's a – you know, people are naturally cooperative and if they rarely come across um, sociopaths, then they're unlikely to be switched on to, hang on, is this guy going to just, you know – screw me over or rip me off or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so you kind of – it kind of fluctuates in that 2 to 5% level. Um, it's almost like some people can turn it on and off. Yeah, okay. The the song is called Everybody Knows by Leonard Cohen and, and I think if that can be the theme song for today's episode or not the theme, you know how sometimes you attach songs? Oh, yes. Yeah, because yeah. it's got that line, the, the poor, poor say poor and the rich get rich. Yeah, okay. That's a good line. Yeah. And everybody knows. Mm. Um, yeah. So that, that anyway, the capitalism is a psychopath, and yeah, it's 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 interesting too because we we have Western societies that that celebrate the successes of capitalism, but we don't live in a pure capitalist environment at all. I don't even know how you can have capitalism with um, government and tax, to be honest. So um, yeah, that's interesting, and and I think we have what's it called corporatism or crony capitalism. That, that seems to be more what we have, where there are vested interests that get benefits, vested, various capitalist interests that get benefits from the government, mm. and it's anti-competitive. Mm. That's Peter Schiff's thing, right? He's yes. like he like really believes in capitalism, and but but did describes that what's going on is not true capitalism because a lot of uh, Peter Schiff's opposed to government influence, and yep. I mean he's he's typical. Now, he's got some arguments which um, are interesting and, and make sense um, in terms of um, a lot of, uh, say, corruption is only enabled by the government because the, the free market would would kind of flush it all out. Yeah. Um, and he, he gives some sort of interesting things. Like he, he thinks that, um, for instance, things like racism can only be enabled by the government because if you've got a a free market system and you've got to compete for the, as a business, you've got to compete for the best workers and also you've got to compete for your, you know, your, you, you know, your customers, mm. the business that goes, oh, well, we're not, you know, we're, we're going to um, not have the best staff and we're just going to pick them up on race and, yeah. and you know, we're, we don't want to serve these, this minority group of people. Mm. Um, that business is not going to do as well as, a business that it, that has access to the, the to the best people, irrespective of race or sex or whatever. Yeah. Um. And they've also got access to the most profitable customers because they they're not interested in anything but the profitability of you know the transactions that are taking place. Yeah. Um. Whereas if you've got a government that comes in and says, well, actually you've got to you know recruit these kinds of people or you know or you know. This you've got to um, you know uh, you know serve these types of clients. Um, it can end up, even though it might not be trying to, creating a system where where there there is actually a kind of like a you know racism's enabled or sexism's enabled or you know whatever the particular uh, mm. scenario. Yeah, you don't see elite sports teams selecting based on uh, all these discriminated discrimination policies they're just selecting for the best they're not like oh we don't want samuel Eto'o. he didn't go to harvard 
yeah um or you know or, or, or whatever like the top the top players in, in in a sports team like you know manchester city or something like that would have come from so many diverse backgrounds like that would be the 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 most idyllic in some ways woke corporate board ever just like any high level sports team <laughs> yeah <laughs> with a diversity of backgrounds but that's you know pure competition demands they get the best people so yeah yeah. And, and I guess where you have situations where there's entrenched racism, it's quite often that the government has actually made a law that businesses would rather actually ignore, you know, that whether you're looking at it, you know, a sort of, um, you know, southern states of America, sort of post-Civil War or, you know, wherever it is, you know, you, Malaysia, you might, you know, argue that they have got um, racist um, policies against the, the Chinese yeah. Um, population, uh, but they're, they're all government enforced. If you know, if you, if you, the the argument would, is that if if you don't have the government enforcing these things, people will just make private contracts with, yep. you know, whoever they whoever they want. Yeah, and most people really are not that interested in 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 you know being racist towards people. They'd rather when it comes down to whether your your business is going to be profitable, mm. um, people. Do not care. <laughs> yeah, you can be racist. racist and eat porridge, or not racist and eat sirloin steak. And it's like, well, you know, the the consequences of being racism are if they make me economically worse off, I'm less motivated to be racist. Mm. Um, you've got lots of questions we haven't addressed at all, Andre. Oh no, just some uh, just some uh, interesting stuff. I came across some some uh, beta shares stuff there, and also uh, a, a, a cool field town video where he's talking about. In terms of when you're doing your your calculations for valuing of companies, like in the high inflation environment, should you should you make your margin of safety bigger? So, it was, um, do you mind if we watch the video? It's yeah, about yeah. five minutes long, and then if uh, yeah, play it, and you can shut it off anytime if you're uh, getting getting bored or you think it's dumb or well, whatever. How about we put our hand up if we want you to pause? Yeah, cool. Rising interest rates. Not crash the oh, property market. Playing, and I want to know what happened to my YouTube. Let's take YouTube a look premium. in playing, 1970. Playing so in 1970, oh, I'm I'm not wrong. don't give this guy example, free coverage. The average price was about <laughs> He's not a sponsor. Right, this guy is not a sponsor. Let me shift accounts to my premium account so I don't have to watch this BS. <laughs> he's not even a sponsor, and he's getting ads on his show. It's ridiculous. Free webinar. Here you go. Here we go. Hi, you guys. I'm Phil Town from Real One Investing. Today, I want to talk to you about what or not you should adjust your discount rate in today's market. That discount rate, by the way, we call the minimum acceptable rate of return. Let's see if we should change it. I've never heard of this guy. He's a mad Buffett and Munger acolyte. So it's no secret, we're faced with a lot of economic uncertainty right now. We're seeing record inflation. The Federal Reserve is aggressively raising interest rates. We try to stabilize that inflation. We've got low unemployment. People are still buying stuff. We got high interest rates are starting to kick in to sour the economy. We've got mortgage rates doubling. Stock market's going down. Jobless claims are starting to go up. What is happening? So regardless though, of what this economy is doing. Rule one investors have an investment strategy we should stick to. We can stick to it and buy wonderful businesses at fabulously discounted prices, and that is going to make you rich. However, there are times when you might need to think about the discount rate 
and factoring current economic risks. And that's what a lot of people do on Wall Street. They go out there and they adjust their discount rate for the risks going on in the market. So what's a discount rate? Let's just dive into that. In my view, what a discount rate is simply the minimum acceptable rate of return you're willing to get year after year. How much do you wanna make on whatever it is you're buying? That's the discount rate. Now you can get all kinds of MBA answers to this thing, but that'll do the job for you pretty good. And the rate that I use, the discount rate that I use is 15%. Now 15% relative to this market in the last 10, 15 years is an extremely high discount rate. It basically says that whatever price I buy this stock at, I need to get a rate of return of at least 15% compounded. And that means if I look out and say that, oh, 10 years from now, I should uh, be able to sell this stock for, let's say, $100. And if I'm uh, requiring a 15% per year rate of return, I know immediately I've got to pay no more than $25 for that company. Now, the reason for that is because a 15% return will double my money in five years. 15% doubles your money in five years. Do the math. All right. That means that in 10 years, it should double twice. So if I the rule of the rule of seventy two. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, you divide seventy two by fifteen in this case. Yep. And that's roughly how many years it takes to yep. double your money. So, his thing of five years goes with quite well with the rule of seventy two. Yeah. It'd be like four and a bit years. Yeah. Four point you know nine four point eight years or something. Yeah. So yeah, rule seventy two. Yeah. If it was um ten percent, you divide seventy two by ten. No, yeah, 7.2 years. Yeah. So you double your money every... It's not exact, but yeah. anyway, yeah. So yeah. Keep going. Yeah. I buy the stock for $25. In five years, if it doubles at 15%, I'll have $50. And in 10 years, I'll have another 50 or a total of 100. So what that means is a real easy way to think about this, if you use my discount rate, is you take the value of that business out 10 years out, whatever you think it'll be 10 years from now, and simply divide it by four. And that tells you what is the maximum amount of money you would want to pay for that company. Now, of course, you guys know we've been studying rule one with us that we then further discount that by cutting that number in half. So we we call the number that you arrive at when you divide by four to the price it's going to be at in 10 years. Let's say in this case, we think it's going to be 100. So we divide by four. So we're looking to pay no more than $25. That's the sticker price of the company. That's what it's worth. That's the intrinsic value. Now, we don't want to pay intrinsic value because we could be wrong. We could make a mistake. So we're going to cut that in half and that becomes our margin of safety. Therefore, the discount rate that we use is not just 15%. It's massively larger than 15%. Now, why would you want to change that? Well, there are going to be companies out there that simply are never on sale under that kind of condition unless there's some kind of gigantic economic meltdown. But you know what? I would rather wait and be patient and just hold on to that big, huge discount rate such that when I buy something, it's very likely to be very much on sale. So I'm going to recommend you guys that we don't mess with discount rates. We don't even think about discount rates. What we think about is what is the minimum acceptable rate of return that I want to get out of my investments well into the future. Now, what about this related to inflation? Well, remember now, if we're already a discount rate of 15%, that's double the rate of inflation right now, already. 
And then again, we're going to cut that value of the company in half and buy it at half of, of the uh, intrinsic value. So we've already baked in a tremendous amount of the economic risks that we're facing out there in the future with inflation and all the uncertainty around it. So I feel real comfortable. This is when we're going to do a really good job of figuring out the value of these businesses. So use a standard quote discount rate with a minimum acceptable rate of return. The one we use is 15%. Strongly recommend it. I think you're going to do fine if you do that. All right. Now, I'd love to hear from you guys. Should you adjust your discount rate in today's market? Do you think so? I don't know. Write me, write me, write me a little answer to that one. Leave a comment there. I'll be sure to answer you guys and uh, we'll follow up. Now, thanks for watching and go play. Cool. Yeah, I don't think you'll say? be buying many stocks. What's that? I don't think you'll be buying many stocks. Yeah, he's not a Microsoft shareholder, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, look, the, the idea that you have a margin of safety, mm. um, for sure. There's, there's Seth Klarman, is he, he wrote margin of safety and that's like $3,000 a copy now because there's like so, like there was one run, I think. Yeah, where are we? Um, so it's like a collector's item in this book, margin of safety. Uh, yeah, I, I think a margin of safety, absolutely. Um, the the 15% discount rate, the idea that you want to get 15% return mm. per annum. Um, yeah, that that's fine. Um, he, that's how he characterizes discount rate. Um, I, I was talking about mining companies. Mm. Uh, a mining company, I hold shares in using an 8% discount rate and saying that's a ridiculous discount rate because um, mining companies are really risky. Mm. Some people might say for a new mining venture, you should have a 30% discount rate mm-hmm. or, or 20% whatever. Yep. So... Um, uh, I think the discount rate maybe should adjust depending on what business you're buying. I think uh, that's in, key. That is absolutely in, like key. Yeah, yeah in, in some businesses, 15 might look like a high discount rate yep. and in other businesses, 15 might look like a, a low discount rate. So I, I think there can be nuance on there. But the, the idea is saying that I'm only investing in putting my money at risk if I'm getting at least 15% return. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not mad at having that kind of standard yeah. and, and, and having that as a, a frame of reference. Yeah. That, that's one thing. I, he doesn't say how he works out what the share price is going to be in 10 years. That's not a criticism of him. It's a, a small video, but it'll be interesting to see how he actually works out. I think you have to do value. his course. You have to buy his book and do his course and stuff. Okay. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, he's always talking about Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and that's sort of the basis of his, his philosophy there. Yeah, he's sort of emulating those guys. Yeah. Um, oh, I, I was going to say something else. You have something to say, John? Oh no, I was just going to say to uh, and again, you know, short short video. So mm, yeah, I give him a little little bit of room. But I think what Andy was saying about it, you know, it really does depend on what you're you're buying because obviously different businesses. You know, if you had a, a you know a business which you know, has long-term government contracts at fixed fees and, and you know, the cash flow, future cash flows may be very predictable. Yeah. Um, you would think that you wouldn't need um, as large a discount rate to, to, to value that. Um, yeah. You know, you'd pay more. You'd pay more for, for, for a business with secure cash flows. You pay a premium for quality, yeah. which is yeah. lower discount rate. Um, the the thing is, though, he, he then says we then make it less. So it's like we have a 15% hurdle. Yeah. Um, and on top of that, we then also 
want to pay less than than yeah. the price the fifteen percent discount rate implies to have a margin of safety. So you you could do his thing with a fifteen percent discount rate um, for pharmaceutical company that has cure for cancer, and then say I don't need to lower that by anything for the margin of safety mm. because it's just safe. Yeah. Um, and then a company that that makes um. I don't know, something that goes in and out of fashion or whatever, mm. um, I will have a bigger margin of safety for that. A cyclical mining company needs a, a much bigger margin of safety. Um, so we can all have the 15% discount rate and the share price, I think you said, is 25 bucks over, mm. um, you know, if you want to have a 15% profit per annum for 10 years mm. or compounding over 10 years. So for you pay $25 for the pharmaceutical company with no margin of safety, or $22, so you got a margin of safety. Um, and for the mining company, you pay $9 mm. because you need a much bigger margin of safety. Um, it's the, the, the Phil Town thing there, if he's doing his research and everything, by all means, you can find um, places that you can have a, a strong belief that will have a 15% return per annum. Mm. That, that's what I got into when I first got in value investing, into value investing. Um, and, and part of it is, yeah, being patient and waiting. Like he said, he's not just going to rush to try to force returns out of things. Yep. He'll be patient and wait. And, and I think that's good advice too. The problem is that a lot of people can't are in a financial position or feel like they're not in a financial position to be patient and wait. Like if you're a retiree mm. and you need to be generating some income from your superannuation mm. Or even if you're 10 years out from retirement, you're trying to build up your superannuation. Mm. It's, it's, it's hard to say, be patient and wait. The yep. other argument might be, well, just go for a 12% discount rate and don't stay out of the market. Yes. Yep. Um, he, he, if you can find companies- it's like 12% you can get, that's, you know, getting close to like, you know, this like ETFs that could do close to that, right? Yeah. So, I mean, is it, is it, is it uh, there's a lot of companies out there and I'm, I'm sure this guy's good at what he does um, if he's a, a Buffett acolyte. Mm. Um, well, sure, like you'd expect him to be good mm. at what he does. And and I think there are companies all over the shop where you can get the 15% returns. Mm. Um, but if, if someone's in a state of paralysis by analysis where they're not in the market because they're trying to find these companies that have the 15% return, um, then they find four and they don't have good quality diversification. They all happen to be in the exact same industry, for mm. example, or the, they have the same geographic risks or whatever. There's a, they might might have been better off just buying the index and getting 12% returns. Yep. and and Or 10% returns. So there's, there's a consequence of opportunity cost from selecting individual stocks and having a, a hurdle they have to meet the criteria for 15% return. And then there's also risk that comes in stock selection that the indexes yeah. are supposed to mitigate or, or, or remove. Yep. Um, on the other hand, if you research companies well then and, and you know what you're doing, then you can get those returns and, and probably have less risk if Could you just good companies. A- average into like a, a known S&P 500 while you're doing your research and then just if you come across something you really like, just move sideways into the... The thing that's awesome. There's no rule that says you can't do that, Andre. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It's it's just yeah. It's 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 the skill set required to do it, and then having the discipline to do it, and all those things. Like I, I don't think anything he's saying is wrong. Mm. Having those standards. Yeah. Uh, it's not for everybody. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the big takeaway is again the I, I use discount rate uh, as as a bit of a risk 
thing as well. So I'll, I'll want a higher discount rate on bigger risk things. Yep. Um, if he's just saying that's my return hurdle and then I do another margin of safety on top of that, it's not yeah. not, not dissimilar. Yep. And his method might have to be better than mine mm. based on that. But I, I don't even like say I'm investing to get a 15% return mm. or a 20% return. I, I'm, I, I think I'll be saying to you for a decade now, James, my target's 10% per annum and I just happen to exceed it yeah. a lot. Um, and, and yeah, still if I have a 10% return, I'm not going to be mad at that if that's the average return. You're talking about your, your, your super? Yeah, 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 yeah. my investments. Yeah. I'm, 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 if I get a 10% return in a year, yep. that, that's fine with me. It's just that I, I, I think I can get better returns or more likely to get better returns. Mm. But my, my, my discount rate's 10% in mm-hmm. that case. Yeah. Um, but I'll then buy things that are a lot riskier than what the 10% discount implies, 10% discount rate implies and yeah. then get hopefully out- outsized returns from that. Yeah. So yeah, it's, um, yeah, have, have that standard. It's, it's actually a higher standard than I place on myself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mostly just think this looks like it's good value. I'll buy it and, mm-hmm. and, and don't do that. I used to do, these type of calculations yep. and I, I found that the the numbers can give you a, a false sense of certainty over the future mm-hmm. so oh, i've put in an equation i've calculated it it's in black and white on a screen that's reality now yep and 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 for me i'm much more obsessed with a spectrum of results that could happen yep the extreme outlier the company goes bust an extreme outlier it, it does really well and then you've got a bell curve where the probable thing is is in the middle range but yeah I'm, I'm trying to look at a spectrum of possibilities and i don't know how someone does that with a discount rate at all yeah i'm sure there is a way i just i can't process it or, or don't do that myself i just look at it and think that looks like it's a, a good buy relative to other things and, and i think it's within my safety yeah uh, range yeah yeah okay um, so I, I came. Uh, anything you wanted to add? To no, no, uh, no, nothing to add. That that sounds sensible. Um, I came across uh, this BetaShares article: two ETFs that help you through distressed markets. And one of the ones it pointed to was uh, one on the the ASX uh, called WRLD. Um, but yeah, basically through diversification, it sort of smooths things out, and um, and uh, yeah, I guess helps you ride the storm out. So oh, I, I haven't looked at this one recently, but my understanding is that um, they effectively uh, remove uh, or, or have less exposure to the market as, the, as it falls. Yep. Um, it's almost kind of like it's got th- – this might not be right, so so correct me or oh, know, anyone listen can, can – Look it up and work out how it actually works, but it's well, kind of yeah. A, I was just wondering what what are the things um, that that if you, you 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 saw this article and they point you towards this fund, what are the things you would check out? My my, my concern with uh, any product which tries to reduce risk is mm-hmm. um, quite often it is also the return is also related to the risk. So. Yep. Um, I think I think in this case what they do is they reduce the exposure to the market as the market falls and with yep. an aim to buy it back on on the way back up. Yeah, sort of maybe worth. So they bit. sell the dips. Yeah, almost a little bit like they're having a stop loss. So if you you know mm. if the um, market starts falling, they've got a price at which they you know will reduce exposure to the market, and yep. if it keeps dropping, they'll reduce that even more, mm. um, and then. When the market sort of 
comes back up to that point, they'll take the position back in. I think it's designed to um, avoid the really big drop. So, so that that you know, if it's been say the market's been falling over a period of time, yeah. it'll get less and less and less exposure yeah, okay. to the market. And then, so if you end up having a you know a two year market decline, you won't end up getting exposed to the full the full amount. This might not be how this product works exactly, yeah. but I've, I've, I haven't looked at it recently. Yeah. Um, uh, and then it effectively kind of buys the position back when the as the market recovers. Yeah. So is this something uh, like a, a, you know, you're five or, five or so years away from retirement, you'd start looking at stuff like this or? This is a, because I wonder whether, because you have kind of structured products and I wonder whether um, in the end, you know, if you don't want to have um, exposure to the market, do you just not have that much exposure to the market? So, say, for instance, um, like through like withdrawing into cash or something, or yeah, like I mean, I, I, I mean, this is just let's take this product to work how I've described it, and, mm. and um, that which might not be the the case. Um, so, say say you have a a It'll work in one scenario where you have a market downturn over a number of years, mm-hmm. and you'll you'll limit your losses on the way down, and then get your exposure back on the way up. But if it all happens in one day, yep. if it's a nineteen eighty seven, then you're not, you know, you're not. Uh, it's not going to protect you. Um, it might have other stuff like um, like put options and stuff um, in there where. They, you know, where they've got a sort of a, a, a price that they can sell mm. to to someone else who's uh, bought the put at, um, which protects them on the way down on a quick drop. Mm. But then you're paying a premium for the for the put option if you if that's what you're doing. So it's kind of like any protection in the end is going to have a have a price. Yep. Um, and, and say you know the the vanguards of the world would argue, well, why don't you just if you if you don't want to if you want to limit your downside, why aren't you in a 70-30 balanced fund yep. um, and just rebalancing um, as the market goes down yep. and then rebalancing as the market goes up? Yeah. It's quite funny you said 70-30 balanced fund because I'm looking at these yeah. and it's got the return since inception. Yep. Um, so inception date, 16th December 2015. Um, this fund, uh, WRLD from Shares. Has returns of seven point four seven percent per annum compounding since oh, yeah, the inception, yeah. versus the index benchmark it's going against, which is the MSCI World Index, which has a ten point two six return per annum since inception, which is about three percent different. Mm. Uh, uh, th- sorry, thirty. Thirty, as in th- as in three percent, but thirty percent difference between seven yeah. percent and ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which is, sounds like a seventy thirty. Yeah, so it's like you know, why, why, so while you're talking, I'm looking at this, thinking, why wouldn't you just go thirty percent cash and buy the MSC index, and then you're talking about a Vanguard thing that's seventy thirty split. So can you bring up there. They've got like uh, multi sector ETS. Can you bring up on a new tab, maybe? Um, uh, oh there. shit! Sorry. Uh, like, oh, I should have. Hang on. Let me. I'll bring that up in a yeah. in a separate tab. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Oh, what have I done? Because because you'll probably find that they, they've got a uh, like a balanced or growth. See that diversified option, or whatever. 
Even just find a Vanguard 7030. Yeah. And compare that since inception or since 2015. Um, all right. So, sorry. Just uh, flick down to diversified or whatever. Um, oh, here we go. Yep. Yep. Across there. Yeah. Uh, so, diversified balance. Try that. And there's a high. It, it's slightly different, obviously, because diversified. So, this one out. is uh, DBBF. Yeah. Uh, we'll go to performance. Yeah. <clears throat> and, well, it's only got a short period of performance. So, yeah, it started in 15. Uh, two years ago. Yeah. Okay. We can't really compare, it, but that's all right. Um. But but the principle is the is the same. So yeah. Um. Yeah. Because uh, there's like say for instance they've got a number of um I just just in 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 general uh products that offer kind of those kind of protection bells and whistles. I yeah. I, I kind of feel like you end up back in, back where you back where you started with a yeah. with a balance fund. So yeah. Not necessarily that there's anything. Wrong with them, and sometimes it's good because you might um, you might uh, want to have you know an allocation, a larger allocation to Australian equities or whatever yeah. it is, and then so you get the protection with Australian equities. Um, but um, so is there something we'd be looking at here? So we're on the Vanguard page now. Yeah. Uh, so diversified balanced yeah. index ETF. Yeah, I think that one's uh, fifty. Fifty percent growth. What's the next one up? Diversified growth or something? They got a diversified. Uh, yeah, we got diversified growth. Yeah, I mean, this will be a little bit different as well because it'll be have Australian international equities. Um, oh yeah, but um, if you go to the performance or whatever, then um, then you might find. Can they put that in the table? Does it come in a table? Uh-huh. Chart table. Here we yeah. go. And if you put that one next to. Say what? What do we look at? Say bench. Oh, let's benchmark is fine because um, so five years seven point two seven, um, and then if you flick back to the ASX the one, ASX, yeah, the the, the world one, yeah. and then five years. Well, oh, it's a bit different, isn't it? But but it's I guess that's because the international equities have done so well over the last mm. period of time. But um, but it does it does kind of look like a uh, seventy thirty. Balanced fund only using global equities instead of all the other asset classes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so what do you think, Andy? In terms of uh, you know, you know, because obviously the Vanguard argument would be, well, why not just use the the simple index and invest in line with your risk profile, um, as opposed to um, a a strategy with built in protection. Strategy. Yeah, I don't know the mechanics of that WRLD thing, but yeah, usually you pay for whatever insurance you're getting. So that's you know a currency hedged thing. Mm-hmm. You're paying for the hedging. Um, if there's downside protection, you're paying for that. So I, I don't know enough about the fund, but yeah, my my comment, my superficial comment, why not just be seventy percent in the benchmark MSCI and thirty percent cash mm. it, it looks like it gets about the same return so and, and sometimes you know there might be things that where you want to structure your portfolio for more income um and mm-hmm. so you might want to use a derivative have a you know etf that uses a derivative strategy to to give you more of your return in income rather than than growth yep um and then you might actually the derivative used might cost more than the you know, than the income that they're producing. But you, you still might end up with an outcome that you are comfortable with because you're getting a large income payment and not very much growth as opposed to mainly growth and not very much income. Mm. 
Um, what else did I come across? Uh, gold versus inflation. So um, another beta shares article um, where I think they're just trying to flog one of their ETFs again, um, but to the incorporate currency hedging. Um, but they, yeah, they were saying that gold doesn't actually is not like inverse to inflation, but it more goes up with interest rates or something to that effect. Let me. Because there's also like always this argument of it's actually real interest rates. So when you get low real interest rates, yeah, that's when gold uh, performs best. So you know if you're if you've got a situation where inflation's ten percent and you know interest rates are ten percent, that's a mm. a real interest rate of zero. Yeah, you'd be, be doing better than when you know interest rates were two percent, but inflation was zero. Yeah. Um, that's, I guess, the sort of the, the argument that's generally made is that yeah, the, the negative real interest rates mm-hmm. um, are a good position for gold, essentially, because your other alternative is put money in cash or bonds or whatever, and yep. you're just going to lose value over time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, in 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 simple terms, it's not entirely true, but in simple terms, you can't generate interest from gold. Mm-hmm. Right, you literally just have a lump of gold, and then in ten years you get a lump of gold. There's no yeah. compounding of the physical gold. Yeah. So if if real interest rates are negative, then by holding gold, you're not going backwards. Whereas if you have money in the bank, it's actually effectively going backwards because of real interest rates being negative. So in that yeah. environment, why would you not just put your money in gold? Like why keep money in a bank getting negative real returns mm. when you can get neutral returns in gold? Yeah. Um, in, in an environment where real interest rates are positive, mm-hmm. one might say why hold gold when yep. you can actually get a real return from having money in the bank? Yeah. So. Yeah, I think that's it. Mm. Yeah, cool. Uh, and I guess this is the last little bit of information I found. Uh, they are talking about... Um, that shares are still the most popular asset class, but crypto cryptocurrencies uh, are, are following uh, in in hot pursuit there. So, um, and the idea that they have to regulate them, but they were saying there was just one interesting thing in here: only twenty percent of cryptocurrency owners considered their investment approach to be risk taking. Jeez. I thought you were going to say only twenty percent of cryptocurrency investors were over eighteen, but yeah. <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, I don't know. What does that just speak to the marketing and the hype or something? Like, yeah, I think it does. I think I think it it, it speaks to um, sheer ignorance and stupidity. To be yeah. honest, if 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 twenty percent of people see as risk taking, eighty percent don't. Yeah, then those that eighty percent is um, in mass form that formation. Um, What's that? Oh, I know what you're saying, but I can't. I can't put words to it. Hypnosis is it yeah, mass yes, formation? Hypnosis, hypnosis? Yeah, 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 they're in mass formation. Hypnosis. Um, yeah, the, 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 uh, to, to say it's risk free is just insane when you've seen the movement of <laughs> yeah. the prices. Yeah, like you've seen the volatility. To to if risk is defined as volatility, mm. you know, according to some yeah schools, like Chicago school, I think risk equals volatility. It's mm. it's clearly risk if it's volatile. Um, mm. Even even if you don't conceive of risk as that way, if you've seen the volatility and you're not like perceiving risk in that, then mm. I I don't know what to say. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know how to respond so, so to that what, level of ignorance. Well, what do you what like? 
What do you think's part of the the marketing message that that or like whatever message that people are willing to get into it? Do you think it's like the the fight the man with the decentralization? No, it's, or? it's 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 smugness. I think yeah. it's um. It's it's crypto people is smart. They're clever. They get it. You know, the rest of the world doesn't. The dinosaurs don't know what's going on. We're hip. We're modern. Mm. Look at a digital background as I walk down a street or something like that. Mm. Um, and and the, the, the whole narrative is right. That whatever the systems we have at the moment mm. that exist yeah. are, are old and they're going to end. Yeah. And like it's all going to move towards crypto. Mm. Crypto is the future. Um, it, it, it is hover cars. Um, the systems we have at the moment are horse and cart. Yep. And it's just history. It's going to go there. Yeah. Um, and, and look, let, let's just go with that. And they're mm. right. Let's look at what happened to the car industry when it replaced the horse and cart. Yeah. The car companies that first came out yeah. don't exist today. Yeah. Ford exists. That wasn't yeah. an early mover. Um, all the big car companies weren't early mm. movers. So even if that was true and, and, and mm. it's replacing everything, nothing is to say that the early cryptos are going to do that. I came across, oh, I should have saved the article, but I came across an article that was talking about how cryptocurrency, in particular the mining for, for, for the blockchain is actually really energy intense. <laughs> like Apparently, what's the number? It's something like uh, for Bitcoin, the... It uses the equivalent amount of energy as Argentina, or you know, for, for just to, for doing the um, just the verification, yeah, or- verification, whatever for the for the for the mining, um, which is just it's just obscene. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> how, how do you be a woke environmentalist whilst a Bitcoin maximalist? If, mm. if that's the case, um, maybe it's like, oh, well, they're using off-peak hydro. And it's, it's not a waste at all. It's like, okay. I actually met a dude at the beach on holidays who starting some Australian business. Or it, started, it exists. Um, I think it's worth, you know, probably worth tens of millions of dollars. It um, uh, uh, uses renewable energy from Tasmania yeah. to mine Bitcoin whilst doing some sort of um, data server thing at the same time. Seems like a cool little business. Yeah, right. And be worth a packet. Um, well, by my standards, a packet anyway. Mm. Um yeah, so even if the technology is is the way, what stops it being repeated or improved really easily? Mm. So Bitcoin was the first one, right? Mm. Or maybe, probably, right? Um, is is there anything that's more effective than Bitcoin in terms of computing power? Yeah, pretty much everything that's not Bitcoin mm. that's been developed since is better yeah. than Bitcoin in terms of that. So in terms of actual functionality, you remove the store of wealth stuff, right? Mm. Um, what it actually does, the utility it offers mankind, apart from, well, it teaches a government a lesson or whatever you want to say, it keeps on getting better. The software keeps on getting better. Mm. So unless unless somehow there's a, a thing that corners the software, the same way Microsoft might corner software or Google corners it, mm. then every cryptocurrency is going to be legacy cryptocurrency anyway. Yeah. And the new stuff's the only stuff that's worth something. So it's, it's, it's constantly having to be on the newest one. And then uptake. If there's universal uptake, usually it's because it's cheap to use. Yeah. So if you've got something that's a crypto currency or whatever that's universally taken up, with my assumption that it's because it's cheap to use, like there's probably good arguments against this, by the way. Mm. Um, I, but but assume universally accessible and, and and not prohibitive, then then where's the big money in that? 
for for the people. I mean, is a is the argument that we own a tollway, we own part of a highway, mm. and it's like, okay, fine. Which is the right highway then? Of all the ones there, which is the right highway? Because if it's going to be universally accepted, that means unless all of them are universally accepted, it's probably one, mm. right? So how do you how do you back that horse? You know, beta versus VHS? Because I suppose the argument is that the, the right one is the one with the greatest you know network effects or whatever the greatest number of people mm. using it. Um, I I agree with Andy in that um, you, you can't imagine. I, I just can't imagine in. 20 years' time or whatever, the next generation coming up and go, oh, Bitcoin. Yeah. It's going to be like, that's what Dad had. You know? yeah, oh, that's yeah. so uncool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it, it just seems like... So, uh, so Bitcoin has a potential to, to be the um, mini disk? Yeah, yeah, I mean... Potentially. Uh, I, I don't know any Bitcoin argument apart from is it's digital gold. Mm. And I'm not mad at that argument. You can disagree or whatever, but I'm not, I'm not hearing any great argument in the functionality of Bitcoin. The merit of um, blockchain, te- blockchain technology, distributed ledger, um, the idea that you can have um, trustless proof, all that's great, but that's, that's, that's a code that can be written by anyone these days, I think. Well, not me, but people in how to write code. Mm. So the technology itself, that concept, now that's opened our eyes to the existence and the possibility you can you can have a thing that's called Mitcoin or, or Dipcoin or whatever that does exactly that. So where's the preciousness? I, I get the Bitcoin one being the first mover and and having the something network effects is the only. Well, well no, the the, the the agreement that it's worth something. Yeah. Like I get that it was the first thing and people said it's worth something and now people believe it's worth something. I, I get how that can work, but um, for the whole space, yeah. I, I can't see that being applied. Yeah. And, and I mean, I you know th- there are niche situations where. You know, I, th- I think the argument that, you know, if you were in some country and you needed that was, you know, you needed to leave the country in a, in a hurry and get across a border and stuff, but it, it just seems like a very niche sort of argument and, and other arguments where people think that, you know, the everyone's going to transact in Bitcoin seem a bit far-fetched to yeah. me. It just it doesn't – I just can't imagine uh, wanting to, to do that. And even even stuff from the – you know, they'll talk about, about oh, you know, you can't create more Bitcoins, et cetera. Yeah. Because that's better than something that doesn't increase in value. That's something that goes, like sorry, doesn't increase in number. Yeah. That, you know, that that stock that's running a buyback, that runs a buyback every year, will have less of that, you know, stock available every year. Mm. So, and, and there's actually some economic activity happening behind the scenes, which creates ongoing demand. Mm. Um from you know the the company creating profits and then buying back its stock every year, you know you, yeah. you'd expect that 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 would do much better than something that just uh, has a fixed supply and people trade it, but there's nothing actually behind the. But but yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm in the I'm in the metaverse. I'm I'm a I'm a cool cat. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm I don't go out getting slaughtered on Friday nights um, like like my dad used to. I, I play computer games and um, I don't wear an Armani t-shirt. I have a cool skin in the computer game. And at, at the moment, what I'm doing is um, I'm working for a company in in the real world. And then I'm going to the digital world and spending real dollars buying the skins mm. in the computer games. I'm buying a sick racing car in a computer game. I'm getting all these cool digital assets, 
or you know digital tokens um, that I use as status and enhance my game playing ability in the computer game, and I'm trading real Australian dollars for that, right? Yeah. Um, it, it, is it that much of a reach to say that all of a sudden um, I'm now trading those skins that I that, that exist in the digital world for other things in the digital world, and now I'm transacting in the digital world, and there's a small economy. And that starts to expand and it's like, well, I can go to work and get, um, say, 60 bucks an hour and after 10 hours that allows me to buy a, a cool paint job for my car or in the digital world I can do some sort of work that has value and I can get that cool um, paint job for my car for three hours of labor. So now I'm actually doing labor in the metaverse as opposed to going down the street to an office building and, and, and doing whatever I do. Um, and, and the economy starts to develop and become more and more sophisticated. Mm. And then all of a sudden these digital tokens um, really are their own form of money. But, but do, do you think, say, in that situation where you have a something that is useful for a game, to me that's actually a stronger argument. I, 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 this is not something that I would do myself, but it is almost you have actually created a use case for your things because they're useful in the game. Yeah. So, 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 you know, th- there is a kind of a if people like the game, then there is a, an actual real demand for for this stuff, as opposed to the purely speculative value of a c- cryptocurrency. But, but, there's but, but, no value without without that speculation. Well, well, a lot of the more like less the newer than Bitcoin stuff, right? Yep. The idea is that it's utility, and you pay for the utility. Mm. So, like, even ETH, Ethereum and all that, I talk about gas. There's, there's a network that offers utility and, and, and you pay for that utility. So, um, I'm, I'm a coder, right? Um, and I don't know anything about computing stuff. So, I'm just going to make up things that might not be right. But um, I think jQuery is a computer language and Python. I don't know. Let's just say they are, right? They're computer languages. Um, in my imaginary world, they don't talk to each other right so i've got to use one platform for one thing and another platform for another thing right um some crypto genius has come up with some sort of bridge between python and jquery whatever the other one is um and and that's a blockchain crypto bridge right and that bridge will save me it'll make me 30 percent more efficient in my work with these computing codes so I want to use that bridge. I have to uh, pay effectively a tollway for using that bridge, but it makes me more productive in the real world. Mm. And that cryptocurrency, I pay for it in the cryptocurrency. So it's called crypto bridge and I buy crypto pegs or crypto pavers or whatever yeah. to pay to go across the bridge. Yeah. That's an that's economic use case yeah. within its own little closed economy. And, and that's what a lot of the crypto stuff is these days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, functional use cases to create efficiencies yep. in software engineering type stuff. Yep. Yep. Um, and you can totally see the value in that. Yeah. It's just that, again, it must be so competitive to to get to the top with that. And, like, whoever invented all these codes anyway, like, um, or programming languages, like, are any of them billionaires? Mm. Like jQuery or MS-DOS, or I don't know, probably MS-DOS is bloody Bill Gates and he's a billionaire, but... Um, or, or Lunix or whatever, like there's all these software things and computer code languages, like digital things that people mm. created that are highly useful, high utility, high value, 
Yeah, they're effectively free and no one made any money off it. And maybe the reason they're so widespread is because they're effectively free and no one made any money off it. So um, yeah, with the, with, the, with the crypto stuff, even, even if it is of functional value, the monetization and extracting money from that, I think is problematic because um, you, as soon as you start to monetize, imagine Facebook when it was starting, tried to monetize and, and, and charge a subscriber fee from day one. Yeah, yeah. Right? That, that, that's in the social network, the movie, remember? I haven't um, seen the movie because oh, I don't you? like Mark Zuckerberg. So, What's the um, – what was the f- – you've seen it, haven't you? No. Oh, okay. So – you're, you're the cool guy at the table, James. Oh, clearly, clearly. So I've watched a movie called The Social Network. Um, but Zuckerberg and uh, I've forgotten his chief financial officer, basically he's one of his mates, but he, one of his mates wanted to monetize it early, so he put a whole mm. lot of advertising and on it um, early and Zuckerberg was, was in the movie. I'm talking about the movie here, mm. not in reality. Um, uh, not necessarily in reality, but um, but Zuckerberg was pushed back on that um, quite heavily to say, no, no, we just we we just have to let this thing go. And who's the um, who's the the Napster guy? Can you remember that they ended up in Sean something. Sean Parker, yeah, Sean Parker, and Sean Parker was in the movie very much. Um, no, no, you don't even know what this is that yet. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to find out what it is before you try and monetize it. And yeah. So, so yeah, it's quite yeah. On that point, like it's quite possible that there's a lot of people who tried to monetize things too early and ended up just you know killing them off. Yeah. So let's say they um the one of these or a bunch of these cryptos have the success of Facebook with the uptake, mm-hmm. um, then they monetize it like Facebook did. Um, and then TikTok comes along five years later, 10 years later. Yep. Is Facebook even going to be around in 10 years? Mm. So, um, again, world changing or is it just, um, you know, let's, let's get the hidden money we can and run. Like, it, let's, let's cash in while we can. Mm. Um, and, and maybe that happens, but you, you've got to be lucky enough to become a Facebook, time your monetizing, and in this thing that maybe doesn't have the same network effect power as Facebook does because of its first mover nature and the fact that it's not like everyone pouring into be Facebook, like it seems like everyone's pouring into have crypto um, assets. Um, yeah, maybe you can't even be a Facebook because it's just, it's, it's the, the competition is so strong that no one can actually expand that much in the first place to even get to the point of cashing in. Yeah, because I think it is, um, you know how you, you, you like to talk about moats, Andy likes to talk about moats, um, a lot of these, a lot of, uh, like, digital stuff, um, I mean, this this is probably real world as well, but appear to have very large moats and then they can just evaporate. Mm. Um, so saying TikTok, Facebook, and, you know, Facebook's now not a, you know, a young person thing at all. It's like old people like that, whereas the cool young people like TikTok or whatever. Yeah, and like it, the proper youngins, I see it, at, like, with clients at work. Like they full full like nose turn up when you talk about Facebook and stuff like that. Like, I hope one of them says okay, boomer to you. Let me see you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's a um, there's a one of the assessments that uh, that we do is about updating your your hospitality industry knowledge, and it's like what's the best way to stay in touch with your customers? And it talks about MySpace. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> the, the funny thing is, MySpace was such a long time ago yeah. now that there's eighteen year olds that 
either haven't heard of it or like, yeah, I think my parents had it or something like that. I was like, damn. Because I remember thinking that MySpace was the best. Yeah. When I saw Facebook, I thought it was a complete piece of junk. I was like, <laughs> you can't even customize the background. And like, this is really dumb. But yeah. shows what I know. Yeah. But it is, it is funny, the things that have, like, there's a lot of, you know, companies where, where it's something like, you know, Nokia looked like it was, it was going to be, you know, the premier sort of technology company for, you know, for mobile phones. And then it's mm. like, I mean, who, who's bought a Nokia phone? <laughs> yeah, I think there was like a bit of a renaissance movement towards oh, yeah. getting Nokias, like the- Retro the, type, yeah. The, the Matrix one. Oh, the, right. the, remember how tech that was? The, the one that had the slidey bit at the bottom <laughs> and was like, yeah. I think that one made a resurgence a couple of years ago. But um, Airlines- were a massive technological leap that changed the world. Mm. How much money has been made in airlines? I don't know. Well, Warren Buffett says they're financial weapons of mass destruction, doesn't he? Yeah. And, yeah, right. If and he could go back in time, he'd shoot down the Wright brothers or sort of Kitty Hawk or something, doesn't he say <laughs> Did that? He actually say that? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a Charlie Munger thing. Yeah, maybe he'd say Munger that. Everyone would be like, yeah. yeah. And then he'd like eat some peanut brittle and keep And, and Gordon Gecko is quite negative on them as well. <laughs> it's true. All oh, right. Uh, yeah. I, I don't remember the details. I just remember Charlie Sheen disappointing his father. That's that's all I remember. Um, hey, speaking of Warren Buffett, there was uh, a while ago you sent me through this uh, article that you believe to be disingenuous. So basically, that Warren Buffett has done a backflip on yeah. cryptocurrency being rat poison oh, because yeah. he, he invested in uh, some Brazilian new bank NU. B A N K, but they say it heaps sexier because they're Brazilian. Yeah, somehow that sounds really cool and sexy. <laughs> but but this, this is going to be this is going to be Buffett's going to look at a company and go does you know he doesn't really care about the cryptocurrency. He just cares about do people come up and pay money or is there you know is this company profitable? Well, well, yeah. the website is news. dot <laughs> yeah. which um used to use the word um. What was it? Disgusting. Everything, every article had the word disgusting. I guess the algorithm knew that people click on disgusting and, and like every, every few months there's a new word that's just on every article effectively. Mm. It's just like clickbait, absolute clickbait. But this one I'm like, oh, press the bloody button. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, Warren Buffett's backflip after calling crypto rat poison his, his backflip um but cop, let's, cop, let's give credit this, let's give credit tagline, though. Wait, wait, let's give credit to this journalist alex turner cohen such a such a wonderful journalist describes warren buffett's backflip where he buys a digital bank in brazil that has some small connection to cryptocurrency so yeah, um, but look, hats take, off to you take, for being a person of integrity line, alex turner cohen Billionaire US investor Warren Buffett slammed crypto cryptocurrency as pointless. Now he's had to eat his words. Yeah, I hope Warren Buffett sues her. Imagine but that. Dude, but like, uh, she's, Warren Buffett's coming from you, Alex Turner Cohen. You, did you do journalism at university? Is that even a degree? Yeah, this, <laughs> it sounds like the friendly Geordie's rent. Seriously, uh, like if like you know real estate agents yeah. and um, you know financial advisors and all that, the mm. you know the, the professions you're embarrassed to mm. say. I reckon journalists like these days. If you say you're a journalist, mm. people's like, oh, all right, whatever. Yeah. 
it's because of people like Alex um, Turner Cohen that maybe damaged the reputation of journalists yeah. with articles saying that Warren Buffett's had to eat his words when he bought shares in a digital bank that has a very, very small connection to cryptocurrency. Yeah. Well, I, I went to and check, I went to many, check out the How many bank? minutes of my time did I have to waste to read that article? By Alex Turner Cohen. Did it the, give the, um, does it give the reading time? I like don't think she's going to win a Pulitzer Prize for this one. <laughs> yeah. uh, no Pulitzers. Yeah. Um, it, it, it probably doesn't have the word disgusting in it, so I don't even know how it made it on news.com.au, yeah. to be honest. And she probably got paid sick coin too. <laughs> Sorry. I, yeah. To like... Sick coin. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, but to wind it up, I don't think that's a very good article, and um, I don't think I'm going to be subscribing to to articles by that journalist. Yep. And I, I wasn't doing quotation marks when I said journalist, but you know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's that's about all I had to talk about this week. Well, how about you guys? Anything you want to bring up before before we wrap up? Can you think of a profession that's worse to say at barbecues now than journalists? Like, I can't think of a more on-the-nose profession. I reckon it'd still be pretty badass to be, if you're like a war zone journalist, that'd be pretty like... Oh, actually, yeah. That's a bit of a mic drop if you're like... Yeah, I guess if like you're like, oh, I, um, like I do experiments on non-consenting humans, that's probably lower than journalist. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? The, the name of that profession? <laughs> <laughs> World War Two German scientist. <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. Well, uh, we'll uh, guess we'll wrap it up there. Thank you for your time, guys. Cheers. Yeah. I'll see you next week. Cheers. All right. Fucking journalists. <laughs> Disclaimer. The information discussed on this podcast is for general information only. It should not be taken as constituting professional advice from Andy, James, Andre or any guest they may speak with. We are not your financial advisors. You should consider seeking independent legal, financial, taxation or other advice to check how the information discussed on this podcast relates to your unique circumstances. We are not liable for any loss caused, whether due to negligence or otherwise arising from the use of, or reliance on, the information provided directly or indirectly, by use of this podcast. The music for today's episode is by Alexi Action from Pixabay. Thank you for listening.